This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. If I could walk with the animals, talk with the animals, grunt and squeak and So I have to say one of the most the intriguing stories in this latest issue of Bloomberg Business Week has to do with bird brains and self-driving cars. And we got you there, right? You got me. We got you there, right? You got me. Joel Weber is here with us. He, of course, is the editor of Business Week. And the author of the story, Sarah McBride, VC reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us from our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. And I have to confess, Joel, when I first read it, I was like, bird brain, is this like some slang that I don't know? You are actually talking about the literally, brains of birds. Literally bird brains. <laughs> yeah. uh, and how did this all like, set the stage here? So Sarah is uh, deeply immersed in sort of VC world. And I think, and she can speak to this, but my reading of it was... We're always interested to see like where talent is moving. And when she sort of raised her hand with this idea of neuroscientists, but neuroscientists studying animal brains, it really piqued our curiosity, especially when we learned that you can make a million dollars going to work for the Googles and the Facebooks and the Apples of the world if you have an understanding of the animal brain. So, so Sarah, can you, can you ex- tell us how you found this story? Well, um, I can tell you it was a number a lot bigger than one million that caught my attention. The first time I heard of a bird brain expert working for any tech company, it was $10 million, and the salary was going to the chief engineer of Twitter. This was around the time of their IPO. So I thought, oh, that's so funny. Their logo's this cute little blue bird, and here they have a bird brain expert working for them. Didn't think too much about it. I made it a kicker to a story about the Twitter IPO at the time. And then several years later, when Elon Musk started his company, Neuralink, he hired as a co-founder another Zebra Finch expert. And I thought, okay, this is just too crazy. So I started Googling it, and I found out that there were tech companies all over Silicon Valley who had hired Zebra Finch experts. And I just looked into it a little bit enlisted my colleague Ashley Vance, who knows a lot about artificial intelligence, which is where a lot of these guys were working, and we kind of went from there. And may I say we were very restrained in not using too many bird brain puns in our story. <laughs> so, Sarah, you piqued my interest. Dumb question alert mm-hmm. coming your way. Why birds and not mice or rats, which is what typically we think of when we talk about experiments? Sure, and to be fair, there are some mice in this story, but um, the thing with birds, and in particular zebra finches, is they're one of the few songbirds learn how to sing from their parents. They don't just innately know how to grunt or squeak the way a lot of other animals do. They're actually learning a process. So their brains are just small enough that you can get a very good idea of everything that's going on in their brains while they're learning, say, to sing a song but not too big like a human brain that it would be unwieldy to, to look at what's going on and uh, try to figure out which neurons are firing when. You can pretty much track all the relevant neurons and see what happens if you try to get a bird to sing a note for longer 
or shorter and learn all kinds of very interesting things. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that any study of Taylor Riggs's brain and everything that's going on in there would be. <laughs> you know, uh, they tell really me my difficult. brain is like a bad neighborhood. You can't go there alone. <laughs> so, so, Sarah, talk to us about the applications, current and potential. Right. So what makes these experts so interesting is basically two things. One, they're all great at crunching numbers. Data sets, you can throw them the biggest possible data sets and zip, zip, zip. They just know what to do, how to crunch all those numbers. And second, there's a trend in artificial intelligence now where people think the best artificial intelligence systems will be modeled on actual brains. So learning how brains work and how brains make decisions in real living things is considered key to developing artificial intelligence of the future. For example, when we need a car to decide something like, should I prioritize the life of my passengers or this pedestrian? Mm. So um, self-driving cars is one. A lot of sound systems um, being able to recognize, is that a siren or is that a crying baby? If you're trying to do voice-based unlocking of a cell phone, things like that. And so is this one of these things, being very cynical, Sarah, where you look at it and you think, all right, well, this is peak Silicon Valley. You know, this <laughs> this is like one of these things that is so... Yeah, when does it actually show up on, yeah. the, on, the, on an episode of yeah, Silicon Valley? Right, exactly. Right? Like, I feel like we're just writing a script here. So, I mean, is this something that is really sort of so out there or... Does this tell us something about where science is going? Yeah. I mean, it's actually happening right now. For example, if you use voice command software like Siri, some of this research is already at play in that and auditory inputs. Some of it is very kind of out there in the future. For example, at Neuralink, where that uh, one Boston University professor was hired They're working on brain-machine interfaces, and there are different schools of thought on how possible that is. And some people say, oh, you know, one day we'll be able to download an entire language overnight. And then there are plenty of people, to your point, who just say, no, that's not going to happen. Well, it's a really, really great read. Highly recommend it to anyone. It is in the magazine this week, already available on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Sarah McBride, venture capital reporter. Sarah, I got to ask, where do you go next? Ten seconds. <laughs> where do I go next? Well, um, you can look up out for a story I have on Burning Man, hopefully okay. coming up. Oh, Ooh, wow. Good tease. From birds to Burning Man. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Sarah McBride, VC it's reporter at Bloomberg. 99.1 Studio in D.C. Joel Weber here with us in New York. He's the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, of course. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week here on Bloomberg Radio. Well, as Taylor was mentioning, we've been tracking a lot of angles to this U.S.-China trade war, and now it's entering into the world of academics in a pretty meaningful way. Janet Lauren, very compelling story on the Bloomberg today. U.S. colleges worry trade war imperils flow of Chinese students. So we're talking about brains. We're also talking about wallets. Janet joins us from Chicago, where she is on assignment. So, JL, what's the story here? 
So if you look at where international students are coming from, uh, studying in U.S. universities, there is China and there is China. Of a million students that came in the most recent school year, a third of them came from one country, China. Uh, India is number two with about 18%. So if you add those two countries, you're at 50% of all international students in U.S. schools. And if there's a trade war coming, that could mean some problems for U.S. universities, especially the public universities, which has seen their state funding go down. And uh, it could be a big problem. Yeah, so Janet, you know, at Bloomberg, we like to talk about the numbers. So put this into perspective for us in terms of financially, how much money does do we get do these universities get from Chinese students studying abroad? Well, it's not just even the tuition student that the tuitions at schools get, um, which is considerable. But international students contributed almost forty billion dollars to our to the U.S. economy last year. It, and it's not just again the tuitions; they're living in communities, they're eating out, they're buying computers, in some cases they're even buying cars, and that supported almost four hundred and fifty thousand jobs annually. And uh, you know, it's the fifth largest U.S. service sec- sector export, believe it or not. Wow. So are the schools speaking up about this? Are they doing any lobbying? Like, what's the response at this point? Well, there are a number of groups in in higher education trade groups that are concerned about this. In fact, there was a whole report that came out uh, in May called Losing Talent by one of the trade groups. And it talks about, you know, this risk that America can't ignore because if students are not coming here, other countries, in particular Canada or Australia, are, are eager to welcome them. And colleges have begun to realize their dependence on schools. And actually, the University of Illinois, a couple of years ago, when their new dean came in and realized that 12% of the entire university population is coming from China, that they need to think about the risk. So they actually came up with an insurance policy. That, this is uh, amazing. If if um, enrollment dropped in the engineering school and the business school um, by 18.5 percent, you know, by an unforeseen international event, such as a trade war or a a health pandemic, uh, that they're covered by insurance. So the business school dean had calculated that, you know, if graduate school tuition is about $40,000 a year, a 20 percent drop in master's students would have a $4 million shortfall, and that would be covered by insurance. Wow. You know, Janet, what has been the actual impact so far? I mean, we think about the trade fight just picking up most recently, May 5th, for example, with the tweet from President Trump. What do the actual numbers show in terms of the types of drops in enrollment that we've actually seen? So enrollment has been flat. And uh, in between the school year 2017 and 2016, um, but that's been the smallest decrease in you know more than a decade. And you know if students are feeling maybe they're not welcome here, maybe they could go someplace else. You know it it it, it could only get worse. Well, and presumably there there's also an element of, and this would be hard to measure, lost research. You know, undone research in, in some ways. You know, people who we aren't educating who, you know, may ultimately become U.S. citizens, may contribute to the global base of knowledge, not to be too grandiose about it. But I would imagine academics are are worried about that as well, right, Janet? Sure. 
Absolutely. And, and part of the reason that Canada or Australia is more welcoming is because it's, it's a post-college um, right. it's a post-college experience. Can they stay? They get these great degrees, but then they're not able to stay in the country and, and work. So it's the, it's the post-visa rules that also are drawing right. students elsewhere. That's a great point. Janet Lauren is endowments reporter for Bloomberg. All aspects of education, she is on it. She joined us as she is on assignment in Chicago. Great to catch up with her. As well, and I really like that because, Jason, last week when we were talking about how the Red Scare was hitting the medical sector, China had set up this program where they were really welcoming back these cancer researchers and saying, like, great, bring all your knowledge yeah. back here. And sort of the idea theft, if you will, of losing those people instead of being able to educate and then keep them here in the workforce. Yeah, the opportunity cost is going to be hard to measure with this trade war. But, you know, we talk about uh, research, we talk about academics, we talk about supply chains, it starts to become a really massive issue that won't easily be reversed. Alright, well, this is a guy who wants you to stay at many of his thousands of locations around the world. Chris Nassetta, he's the CEO of Hilton Worldwide. He stopped by earlier to sit down with Carol Masser and myself for a Business Week Talks session. That's going to be coming up in a few weeks across all of our platforms, but we are going to give you a little sneak peek. We started by talking to him, asking him about the effect of U.S.-China tensions. U.S.-China geopolitical tensions, how's that playing through your business right now? You know, the reality is I talk about it, as you would imagine, a lot. I'm not surprised it's the first question that I'm getting. Um, We're not seeing any dramatic impact on the business. We we came into this year thinking we were going to have a reasonably good year from a same-store growth point of view, that economic growth broadly in, in the world and in the U.S. from a GDP point of view would be a little bit lighter than it was last year, but still positive and, and reasonably good. And I think when we finish the year, um, that's what we're going to have seen. And if I look at sort of the indicators in our business, both advanced indicators, you know, group business or shorter-term indicators in business transient and leisure business, they're all holding up reasonably well. The nice thing about our model is the bulk of our growth is coming from new unit growth rather than same store growth. Hmm. So while I'm reasonably optimistic about the economy broadly and and ending the year in a pretty good place, um, our new unit growth, which is super resilient, is really good. I mean, we're we're experiencing the largest net unit growth numbers we've ever experienced, and that's 75 or 80 percent of our growth. So, and we have tons of visibility in that. So, when you when you look at our overall business, given that's such a huge driver of our growth, we're opening more than a hotel a day in the world. It's phenomenal. Um, yeah. yeah, we feel we pretty good. Like I think when we finish this year, both because I think broad more broadly the economy. In the United States, around the world, as I said, will be fine. And you add our new unit growth numbers to it. We're, we're going to have we're going to have a really good year. And I just, and we've had a bunch of good years. I suspect we'll have a reasonably good year next year. As I well. want to ask you a bit more about that new unit growth, but I do want to ask you: the longer though these trade spats go on, and if we start to see some kind of economic impact, I mean, 
then do you start to get nervous? Yeah, I mean, listen, it would be crazy for me to say we're not watching this very carefully. Of course we are. You know, and I live in Washington inside the Bellway. So if you think it's bad here, <laughs> try the echo chamber that I live in, right? It's like then no, nobody talks about anything but trade wars now that Mexico is done in, in theory. It's all it's all about China. So, yeah, I do think um, that markets don't like uncertainty, right? And so this provides this and other things going on around the world provide a level of uncertainty that's not healthy for the markets. It's probably not as healthy as you'd like for businesses in terms of longer-term decision-making. And so we watch it carefully. I'm certainly very hopeful that com- calmer heads are going to prevail between the sides. I, I Do you think, hear the echo chamber in Washington I, saying I, that something's going to happen? That yeah, something will I get mean, resolved? I think certainly I was hearing a lot of that prior to you know things blowing up, whatever it was, six, six or eight mm-hmm. weeks ago. Um, and what do I know? But I, yeah, I'm definitely hearing a little bit more of that. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons on all sides of this, um, both the China and the U.S. side, for the, you know to to get to a resolution. Hopefully, the G20 summit and those mm-hmm. meetings. Maybe nothing is going to happen there, but hopefully that will lead to something. And I think getting you know getting some of that uncertainty out of the environment will be will be good. Right. Again, I go back to I, I think even with that. Call me an optimist. I think we'll be, the economy will be fine this year. I mean, I think it would be better. More certainty will create an environment where people will invest more, hire more, you know, and do things that will, I think, be more stimulative to the economy. So, right. you know, I'm I'm hopeful. Although I'm not in the middle of it by a long shot. I'm hopeful that. Um, we'll get we'll right. get to some resolution. What's your best read, though, in terms of what the customer wants and, and, and ensuring that, okay, Jason, the customer, comes back not just two Here's times, three thing. times. You're like, not, you're, you're going to, this is not, you know, you're, they're going to they're gonna cut this. Because <laughs> here's what customers want. And we've just finished like nine months of work. And I've sat behind, you know, one-way mirrors with hundreds of customers. We've pulled thousands of customers. Here's what they want. They want a, and, and there's a lot to go. They want a reliable, dependable Experience and they want uh, friendly human service. That's mm. what customers want. That's what they tell you. Well, isn't and if it you do it well, they don't like all the other stuff that sort of gets in the way of that is a distraction. Give me a great, high quality product with the amenities and, and the functionality that I want, and deliver me real service that's authentic with real humans. Know me, know what I want, treat me like a human, not a number. It's not that hard. Treat me like a human, not a number, <laughs> Taylor. You know, you walk into this uh-huh. studio and you're like, who's it stationed for? That guy again? Oh, no, I'm you. just kidding. No, it was a really interesting uh, conversation. And again, that's just a piece of it. But you got a sense from him about what the impact of U.S.-China trade and tensions and all of it, tariffs are so far minimal. And yet... If it really does start to rattle the economy, I mean, this is a global company that obviously will experience some sense of slowdown if, in fact, consumers and businesses start to pull back. Well, and give me an idea of who he is as a CEO, as a person, because you've got to speak with him one-on-one. Who is he like? Well, he's a really interesting guy. You know, this is a guy who came in, and you'll get a sense of this once we roll out the full interview. This is a guy who came in 12 years ago. Blackstone had bought Hilton at the very end. I mean, like, almost to the day, 
before the financial crisis. So like mm-hmm. 2007, the deal was announced on July 3rd. I remember this very clearly. $20 billion plus deal. And then the world just falls off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And obviously a consumer-facing, tourism-based, business-based uh, uh, company was not in a great position. They had a ton of debt. And so he really had to rehab this company in a, a meaningful way. And later on in the conversation, uh, he does talk about some of the huge decisions they had to make. This was a, a sort of loosely held or a sort of loosely controlled holding company based in Beverly Hills. It's now based in Northern Virginia. There were some big changes he had to make. Big changes. And and did he start from the bottom and work his way up? Well, he's an, it's interesting you ask that because we talked to him a little bit about you know the best advice he's ever been given. And he uh, cited his dad getting helping him get a job, uh, not the sort of job that you're like, oh, my dad helped me get a job. Mm-hmm. His dad helped him get a job essentially cleaning bathrooms at a hotel Amazing. in Washington because yeah. that's where he grew up. And that is, you know, what he said was his dad said, you want to understand this business literally from the ground up. Here you go. Amazing. Yeah. Wonderful. Anyway. Well, great interview. So you'll hear, thank you, you'll hear much more of that interview coming up in a couple weeks. It's part of our Business Week talk series where we go deep with a CEO. You'll see it on Bloomberg TV, hear it on Bloomberg Radio. We'll put it in a podcast. It'll be in Business Week magazine. So we'll keep you posted on when that's going to roll out. Well, as we try and understand the modern company, Taylor, people obviously are at the center of it, talent really at the center of it. And so we're really excited to have Nicole Anasinas with us. She is the CFO and the COO of Squarespace. She was just upstairs uh, participating in the Bloomberg Breakaway Summit. That's where my partner, Carol Masser, is. And the session was called The Talent Equation, A Conversation with Nicole Anasinas. So we're going to have our own conversation. Great to have you here with us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. All right. So what's the big takeaway from what you told the audience? Give us a, give us a little taste of what you said. Yeah. So, um, so a little bit about Squarespace. Squarespace is an online platform uh, for entrepreneurs and professionals to build their online presence and brand. Um, and uh, we talked a lot about growing Squarespace and what a phenomenal growth story it's been uh, since Anthony founded it in 2003. Now, we love talking to CEOs, but what I love talking about people in, in the weeds looking at income statements and balance sheets and you're the chief operating officer and the chief financial officer. And one thing that really, really caught my eye was you're operating at a cash flow break even from the very beginning and you're profitable, which these days when you look at a big tech startup, very often they are not profitable. How are you able to manage a company that's private, that has probably tons of fundraising capabilities? You could be spending massive capex and not turning a profit, and yet you are. How do you do that? Yeah, it goes back to the roots of the, of the business that Anthony founded, which is he, he founded the company in 2003 and bootstrapped it for six years. And that introduced a level of operational discipline that enabled us to have massive growth at scale with that high free cash flow generation. And so it's that unique combination of uh, the founder's vision to solve the problems that people didn't know they need to have solved um, with that operational discipline of really putting your money where it matters and making sure uh, you get a return. And that kind of led to this very contrarian um, story of a tremendously successful high growth tech company. Well, and, you know, a 
tremendously successful high growth tech company is is one thing a massive long standing tech company where you worked before IBM yes. uh, is another how do you uh, how do you translate the the skills and 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 what did you learn at IBM which again been around for a while uh that you took really on this journey and, and put into practice. Yeah, I mean, it's great to see. It's great to see what two scale looks like and to be learning uh, at different stages of the company. But one of the things that really um, impressed upon the matters is um, everyone between the first line manager and your direct reports are the people who are going to translate your vision and mm-hmm. and and pace the level of execution. And so, um, and I observed that in in other larger companies and at Squarespace, we've been really really focused on making making sure that we're focused on everyone really being connected to that vision and translating that vision so that we can continue to take forward what Anthony has built uh, as we pass a thousand employees, which we're very close to doing right now. Well, and Jason, so often when we look at these tech companies, what you're continuing to start to see is the shift towards a subscription-based model because that's that recurring revenue that you can really count on. You say here it's 95% subscription. Are there plans to continue that since that is the way it is going? Or do you see areas other where other areas where you can diversify? Yeah, I mean, we've, we are very focused on that subscription model. And it's a reliable model for customers as well. Um, what we are focused on is broadening the number of things that they, that problems that we can solve for our customers. So we started as uh, a traditional online store or website business. Um, and since then, we've been building more and more capabilities abilities to run your business online and be the really the preeminent uh, platform to be able to build your business online, present your brand, and find, engage, and transact with your customers. One of the things I also find so interesting is, you know, the folks who have built sites on your platform, form, I mean, we're talking about Judd Apatow, we're talking about John Malkovich, Keanu Reeves, I didn't know he had a motorcycle company, now I do, uh, Shaq, he's been a guest on, on this show, but they're using the same stuff that I would, or Taylor, probably not the same stuff Taylor would, because she's (laughs) a different category, but, you know, that I would. So what does that do for for a business, this sort of democratization in a way? Yeah, I think it's one of the most powerful elements of the platform, which is that the brand, uh, that brands who are really discerning about how they present themselves can express themselves out of the box through the platform uh, with the same sets of tools that um, I built my son's website on in 90 minutes for a school project. And it's incredibly democratizing and it's incredibly motivating if you're a small business who really needs to present and, and compete with your brand online. Um, quickly here, what's the biggest difference? You know, you leave IBM, you go to a startup. What's the biggest culture shock? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot of changes. <laughs> I think um, one of the things that was that was interesting when I got there was there was in a startup, there's a lot of focus on doing. And so, you know, I'd get asked questions like, can you use a spreadsheet? <laughs> and um, really what I learned was that um, you really have to be focused on doing when you need to do, but never owning. And um, and that's really part of what contributes to that building, that sustainable uh, operational capability within the organization is kind of stepping in and diving in solving the problem of making sure that you've got you're always hiring your replacement right great great stuff nicole anacinas thank you so much cfo coo of squarespace participating upstairs in the breakaway summit i'm driving in my car i turn on the radio how about you let me drive oh no 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 who's gonna drive you home honey please i'll do the driving drive home excuse me i want to drive 
just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close here on Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly alongside Taylor Riggs. Dan Griffith is here with us, Senior Vice President and Regional Trust Manager for Huntington Private Bank. He's usually based out in North Canton, Ohio, but he's here with Taylor and myself in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. Welcome. Great to have you you here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Um, So one of the things we want to get into with you is to understand the Taylor Riggs of the world, the, the millennials, what's on their <laughs> mind as we think about uh, the markets. But but first, give us a sense of, of the market right now as you look at it. I mean, we're looking at a lot of green on the screen today, but it's been a, a bit of a tumultuous year thus far. Where's your head? Absolutely. Right no, I think that that's true. And what's interesting as we talk about it is we're working with planning with millennials and a lot of millennials are looking around and saying Generation X folks and they're saying, hey, we actually kind of like it when the market turns down because mm. we want to enter in, we want to begin our retirement planning and we want to think about what's going to happen even uh, in those rare scenarios in which maybe we pass away. So a tough subject, but one that a lot of people need to be thinking about for sure. Well, and I'm so curious about what millennials are interested in when it comes to their portfolio, because so often we hear that this generation is aloof. They sort of don't really know. They're not really planning for the future. They want to travel. They want a work-life balance. I mean, so when it comes to finances and serious things that you have to plan for, what are they interested in? You know, it's funny. I think a lot of them have kind of taken the script from the older generations. And the things that are important to them are actually different than their, that are important for their parents or grandparents. For example, if you have a mom under the age of 35 and you say, What's the most important asset that you have? She's usually going to say the 30,000 digital pictures of my children Hmm. that I have online. It's not going to be the 401k. And if you look at a lot of people and say, you know, you've got a lot of assets that are uh, virtual in in respect versus uh, physical assets or things that we would quantify before. So I think that's part of it is people are saying, what really are my list of assets? And are they different than they would be before? Or are they different than my parents or grandparents might have had different assets? So if we go to the other end of the spectrum or the older part of of the spectrum, talk to us about what advice millennials are getting or resources maybe from folks in their 60s, 70s from those boomers, because this is a generation that grew up very different from their parents, much more educated, it feels like, about the markets, much more uh, likely, especially at a certain level of affluence, to do some estate planning, to do some, some really intense financial planning. Are they passing that knowledge along? I think the baby boomer generation is doing a great job of kind of having conversations. But the challenge that I think we see with a lot of our clients at the Huntington Private Bank is that the the nature of the, the desires of the people that are there are very different and the nature of the challenges. For example, one in five millennials believes that they're going to die with student loan debt. Well, baby boomers wow. don't even understand what that is. Maybe the other mm-hmm. four are lying to themselves. I don't know. That might be the case. But I think that's a challenge that the baby boomers haven't had to face. 
dealing with real estate. A lot of baby boomers yeah. have great advice for their kids about the right kind of mortgage to buy. But a lot of people who are Gen X and millennials are going to say, that's really not that important to me. I'm not interested in that. So I think there's probably a disconnect between the advice, the good and thoughtful advice that our parents are giving us and the advice that we really need uh, if you're an up-and-coming revenue generator at this point. So often we also talk about behavioral finance as well, and I think of recency bias or hindsight bias where I graduated in 2008. I saw my parents lose half their net worth. Their home went under, you know, whatever it may be. Whereas I talked to my parents, and despite the 1987 crash, you know, they were still able to survive. They had families. They didn't really worry about it so much. I feel like we are very concerned. We remember 2008. We Definitely. remember how hard it is and how hard it was to get our assets back to what it was mm-hmm. after we lost half. How do you overcome that with this generation who only really remembers these volatile moments? Well, Taylor, I think that's exactly right. That, that the history that you have is an emotional one when it comes to the markets. And add that to the fact that there's a lot more skepticism in society And, of course, that skepticism is directly connected with how old you are in some Mm -hmm. ways, too. So we talk with a lot of clients who are not only are they concerned because they've the history of the markets as they see it is a challenge, but they also are skeptical of the markets overall. And so that's a a tough thing. But at the end of the day, if you're going to live to be 120 years old, market exposure is really, really important. Right. Well, and I also wonder about this notion of this idea of an inheritance. You know, I think about my grandparents and and for them, it was so important to leave. And I have had this conversation with my dad. It was really important for them to leave something, you know, like it didn't have to be a lot of money, but that was something that they really wanted to do for their kids. There were seven of them. And so they had to, you know, (laughs) that sounds like a challenge. it It was a challenge, but, but it feels like folks, you know, my parents age are essentially saying, ain't gonna happen like the world has changed that's a challenge i think that a lot of people in the millennial generation and even some gen xers will experience and that is are we even going to get an inheritance and if they do i should say if we do it's going to be in a position where our parents have grown so old that maybe it's going to be at a time where we've passed retirement too i think what we see that's interesting amongst all the generations that exist right now is that they're more interested in having a legacy that's associated with changing society for the good and creating experiences. I've yeah. got parents who have said every time one of our grandkids turns 12, we want to take them on a trip somewhere outside of the United yeah. States. That's the inheritance they want to leave as opposed to here's a check. Yeah. It's an experience and, and changing their worldview for the better. And I think a lot of people are in that position. That's, a, that's really interesting. All right. So only about 30, 45 seconds to go. What's your single best piece of advice if there's a millennial listening driving in their car what's the conversation that they need to have next i think the biggest question or biggest issue we have is think about the type of assets if you've got virtual assets spend some time researching what happens if you were to pass away in a car accident tomorrow Make sure that you know what's going to happen with that YouTube channel that you own or any of the other things that your presence, uh, Instagram uh, account that you mm-hmm. have. Be ready for that because a lot of people are unfamiliar with how that works. Interesting. All right. Dan Griffith, Senior Vice President and Regional Trust Manager for Huntington Private Bank based out in North Canton, Ohio, here with us in New York today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.